Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. While most of us are familiar with tales told from a variety of human perspectives, a significant number of contemporary writers have presented their stories through the lenses of strange, non-human narrators. What are we to make of novels written, for instance, from the point of view of a dog, an inanimate object, or a supernatural being? And what do these experiments in fiction tell us about our contemporary world and ongoing debates in the realms of science and philosophy? Today we're talking to Kate Marshall, Associate Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame, where she also serves on the Faculty of the History and Philosophy of Science program. Professor Marshall specializes in American literature since the 19th century, the relationship between literature and science, media studies, and critical theory. And this year, as a fellow at the center, has been working on a new project considering some of the questions raised by the so-called non-human turn in the humanities. Welcome, Kate. Hi. So talk to us about what you mean by the non-human turn in the humanities. What, what is that about? There's a long and interesting history of thinking about the non-human in the humanities in the 20th century. And there is a very kind of specific version of the interest of the non-human that I would use to characterize scholarship in the past, probably in the past five to ten years, that has been trying to think about the category of the non-human for literature, history, political theory, and philosophy in ways that aren't completely divorced from the longer um, histories of non-human, anti-human, or post-human thought, but that are attentive to contemporary concerns. And those contemporary concerns range from anything uh, more broadly, like a desire to think about the outside or the exterior, to things that are more specific, like concerns about the environment and its non-human character. What your project is, is attempting to do is to create a kind of alternative history of American fiction, correct? Yes, How do you do that? Uh, What is alternative about it? Well, what I'm thinking about is how both the non-human turn in the humanities as well as this larger interest that you mentioned by contemporary writers in various kinds of exteriorities and non-human points of view might be able to offer a different kind of narrative about what important moments in American literary history might be and what certain generic movements might look like when that becomes your focus. And so I've been looking at a few different genres as ways of understanding American literature since the end of the 19th century, and those are weird fiction, and there's a contemporary category called the new weird, which is very much engaged in this. I've been looking at what the novelist Marilyn Robinson has called cosmic realism, which is um, realist fiction that also has embedded within it um, a kind of interest in the outside. And then I've been looking at a genre that I call pseudoscience fiction, which is fiction that incorporates the kind of interest in making distinctions between science and pseudoscience as part of its project. I want to delve into all of those aspects, but first, your project also goes back to what you call the old weird. Yes. The 19th century novel. Mm -hmm. So can you kind of unwrap that a little bit for us? So what kind of novels constitute the old weird and why are they weird? 
Well, this is a matter of some debate amongst both literary historians and some philosophers and critical thinkers. The new weird has become, and the writers of the new weird have become some of the arbiters of how we think about the history of weird fiction, partly because of its popularity. And the new weird is, I would characterize um, with the writing of the British author China Mieville, who's very popular, the American author Jeff Vandermeer, who's... There's a new book out. He has a new book out called Born, mm-hmm. which I'm in the middle of and enjoying. Ba- flying bear. It has a giant flying bear, yeah. yes. Uh-huh. And some interesting non-human sentient matter. And he was um, well known for his Southern Reach trilogy from a few years, from a couple years back. And then there's also um, writers like Kelly Link, who are more known for the short story form and um, something that sometimes will get called fabulism. And a lot of these writers, um, in different ways, will think about the history of the genre that they're working with as being tied specifically to the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft and the Weird Tales, which was a popular literary magazine um, from the early 20th century um, that kind of codified part of what we think about as what weird fiction is. And so often, if you were to think about what the old weird of the new weird is, you would think about H.P. Lovecraft um, and then perhaps some of H.P. Lovecraft's interests um, or influences who were um, a lot of the American romantics. And so you would look at Hawthorne and Melville and Poe as some of those progenitors. Part of what I'm interested in is what gets lost from that story. I think that there are unexpected ways in which American naturalist and realist writers are importantly engaging in um, some of the most interesting qualities of weird fiction. And these can be ways of thinking about kind of cosmic pessimism and indifference and other things that are often attributed to the work of writers like Lovecraft, but have a kind of um, important residue in earlier writing of the 1890s and early 20th century, as well as some of the legacies of that writing in American realism. My understanding of American naturalism is it's in many ways a kind of response to scientific method and and, Mm -hmm. and 19th century science, but you're also talking about pseudoscience. Yes. Okay, so I'd like you to unpack pseudoscience for us. What is pseudoscience as opposed to non-science? Okay, this is, I mean, this is a really important distinction. Um, And pseudoscience as a concept is really emergent in the mid to late 19th century. And when we talk about pseudoscience as opposed to non-science or bad science, what we're talking about is a kind of science that mimics the institutional apparatus and protocols of what you could, for lack of a better term, call real science or just science. And in some ways, this is important for scholars of art and literature because it's a problem of excessive mimesis, meaning it does too good of a job of copying the original. You know, a common way that we talk now about something like pseudoscience would be to give the example of, say, anti-vaccination research or research that's put up against um, climate change models. Um, And part of the argument that's being made by scholars of the history of science is that it's important to go back to some of the ways in which we used to distinguish between science 
and pseudoscience. And some of these examples of pseudoscience are seen to have um, excessive amounts of the apparatus, like that looks like peer review, that looks like graphic data, that looks like a conference that's attached to it, and all of the things that we would recognize as possibly giving the kind of scientific authority, but without the structures that have been established to do so by the academy, but very closely mimicking or copying them. And in the early part of the 20th century, it was important to think about, um, and this is something that comes from Karl Popper, the established way of distinguishing between science and pseudoscience was to think about the falsifiability of an idea, whether a kind of a claim or a scientifically established truth could be had the possibility of being proven wrong was seen as part of its ability to achieve scientific validity. And some of the ways in which the idea of falsifiability were manifested are very important to how we think about things like the distinctions between science and pseudoscience. However, the idea of falsifiability really went out of favor um, in the mid-20th century after the publication of Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, but it's made a comeback, and this is something that I find really interesting. A lot of current historians of science have gone back to thinking about falsifiability and using it as a tool for thinking about the contemporary situation. Um, and so part of what I've been doing is looking at some of that scholarship and then asking how the way a novel might ask similar questions about those distinctions can work a little bit differently or even give a different kind of access to why something like pseudoscience is important to us in the particular way that it is right now. So you're, you're dealing with what you're terming speculative realism. How does that help us or how does it rethink things like point of view or agency. And it's interesting. Speculative realism is a term that's being used by um, philosophers to talk about a, a philosophical project in relationship to rethinking a certain kind of what they call Kantian correlationism and thinking about a kind of dependent relationship between mind and world. But it also emerges in the work of literature scholars like Ramon Saldivar to describe genre. And for him, it's not a philosophical term, but is rather an idea that captures the kind of mixed genres that constitute contemporary realism, which he also sees as the dominant form of American ethnic writing. And so in that sense, speculative realism can work in a few different ways, but I think that it's important that the, some of the philosophical questions manifest in the kind of generic questions that um, Saldivar is also describing, that the way that realist fiction, which is still a dominant form of literary fiction, or what we often will substitute for that, is has become a much more hybrid genre phenomenon. And so something like what I'm calling weird fiction has become much more mainstream in a world in which um, mainstream writers like Colson Whitehead will write a zombie novel or, uh, you know, several authors are kind of working in multiple genres without necessarily having that as their primary point of self-identification. So let's stick with zombies and vampires for a minute. <laughs> let's go into the in, into contemporary popular fiction. So what, what does the zombie and vampire phenomenon tell us about uh, how do they function as, as social novels? That's an interesting question. You know, there's fascinating histories for both figures, and I've read several compelling arguments about zombies and vampires each having kind of class connotations. And so scholars have done good work in tracing figures of the zombie kind of in a longer history to um, 
narratives that have, you know, several different kinds of, say, racial and cultural connotations. And this becomes part of, I think, Whitehead's work in interesting ways. And the vampire is often seen as a figure more of aristocracy. And I think that both of those figures do highlight and renewed emphasis in contemporary fiction. And what I'm thinking of is also a kind of return of the 19th century, which is to certain kinds of Gilded Age economic and social structures. I think it's not completely separable from that. But there's also the kind of the idea that's pretty widely circulated that every generation gets the monster it deserves. And we're seeing a few different monsters arise. And I don't know if the time of the zombie and the time of the vampire is over. It's possible that they've waned a little bit and our current monsters are more kind of undifferentiated masses of goo or slime. That's at least a speculation. But we can think about the intensity of examples of that kind of figure in the, especially in the early, just the early decade of the late 20th and early 21st century as being very kind of fixated on these kinds of figures. And finally, clearly the the non-human turn in literature is in some way a response to what we're calling the Anthropocene, as well as to the possibility of human extinction. Yes. So what ethical insights do we gain? And there's a very compelling argument, I think, to be made for trying to think in new and compelling ways from or about the radical outside or the radical non-human. This is the argument, you know, kind of the, a broader argument against anthropocentric thinking, that if you think in a way that's not human-oriented or if you want to take that another step further, you would say that there's a what's being called petroculture is also a very anthropocentric way of thinking. And if we don't think in an oil-centric way or if we don't think in a human-centric way, then we have an outside chance of dealing with the scale of planetary crisis that we're dealing with. As a literary scholar, I think that it's important to understand the kinds of, I mean, I would think about them as even advanced guard forms of trying to access the outside, which I think is part of the project of so many contemporary writers who are experimenting with diffusing a kind of narrative sentience that we might have otherwise seen residing in very human points of view. Instead, writers might place it outside in a kind of system or in a landscape or in other kinds of non-human agents. Thank you, Kate Marshall. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.